Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing. And today we have uh, somewhat of a special episode. It is um, timely, which some of our uh, episodes are not. They're just sort of conversations with folks uh, that could come out at any time. Uh, but today we uh, are really uh, excited to have Joe Lubin as our guest. He is a co-founder of Ethereum and uh, the uh, founder of Consensus, which is uh, the biggest um uh, developer of Ethereum apps, um, and Joe is here to talk to us about the merge, which is what's scheduled to happen um, or in about mid-September, where Ethereum is going through uh, the biggest shift um, in its history. So we are going to get all into that, but first, Joe, thanks for being here. How are you? Hey, Matt. Uh, thanks for having me. Doing great. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to see you. Um, so, we're just going to kind of dive into uh, some of the technical details and the big picture here about what, what's going on with Ethereum. Uh, like I said, um, many people, myself included, believe this is the biggest shift uh, a blockchain has ever undergone. Um, it's certainly the biggest change that Ethereum has undertaken since it went live in 2015. Um, it's called the merge. And so I'm going to try to explain it high level and, and briefly what uh, Ethereum has been doing uh, since its inception is, is using a, a consensus mechanism called proof of work. And that's where um, computers all around the world try to solve um, an arbitrary hashing problem by trial and error. And they just have to change uh, an input hash one character at a time until they get the desired outcome hash. And it's very energy intensive, um, takes a lot of computing power and a lot of time and a lot of energy. Uh, it's a secure way to uh, have a blockchain network. Um, but uh, as you probably have heard, uh, a lot of criticism has been leveled at Bitcoin and Ethereum, both of which are proof of work systems for the energy consumption that they um, use uh, for this proof of work system. So proof of stake is a different system where validators now like users around the world um, have to put up 32 ether. Uh, it's roughly $64,000 or so uh, worth of Ethereum. And then they have the opportunity to become a validator on the new proof of stake system. So if uh, the new batch of transactions comes to them, uh, they do the uh, checks to make sure everything's okay. And then they broadcast that to the network. There's no uh, arbitrary kind of problem solving in there where you have to use a lot of computing power. So it basically cuts the energy use of a blockchain by more than 99%. So really good on the environmental side. Um, a lot of folks are talking about how it's going to allow Ethereum to scale and uh, to be more secure. So that's it kind of in a nutshell. Uh, Joe, did I leave anything out there? That's a very good explanation. Um, okay. And essentially, um, 
our ecosystem from the start has been about uh, progressive decentralization uh, and uh, we're, we're seeing accelerated uh, progressive decentralization. Um, proof of work is a, a great invention, a great mechanism, um, but it does suffer from from certain characteristics. One is the energy problem, that it's essentially, um, especially in the Bitcoin space, turned into, turned into an arms race where um, it's about uh, creating and getting early access to the best hardware uh, so that you can have an edge on your competitors. And, uh, and that means that you've got to spend a lot to get uh, uh, specially designed hardware and you've got to burn a lot of electricity essentially in order to to run that infrastructure. Yeah. And I think what I left out is if you are that validator or that miner who solves, you know, or you know, who gets the latest batch, you're rewarded with free bitcoin or free ether. So that's what yeah. that's the economic incentive of course behind all of this. Yeah, exactly. And, and so one entity um, or the ent entity that uh, has the best hardware setup and the best networking setup um, uh, can uh, win an outsized amount of, of the block rewards. And so um, efficiencies of scale are, are very important in that system um, where um, there can be unfair advantages. And uh, uh, in a proof of stake sort of system where you're replacing the uh, hardware investment and uh, the paying for enormous amounts of computation uh, and energy expenditure. Um, uh, that has all been replaced by an economic bond. Essentially, you're, you're putting up uh, an amount of ether um, as a security bond, and that gives you the, the right to participate in block production and validating of blocks. And so um, it's much more egalitarian, the, the barrier to entry um, to participate as a validator is a lot lower. There are no efficiencies of scale in that. So uh, everybody, according to the size of their uh, deposit, essentially has uh, an equal amount, uh, of, of pro an equal probability uh, of um, winning um, rewards as a validator or as a block producer. Yeah. Um, so um, it, it's a, a fairer, uh, more diverse and actually more uh, decentralized and decent decentralizing um, mechanism for for running we, blockchain yep. system. We love that at the central. I'll tell you that right now. Um, there's also a carrot and stick kind of approach here. If um, you are a validator on proof of stake and you aren't like if you go against the um, the best interest of the network, or let's say you're not up. Uh, your, your computer's not available um, for uh, the minimum amount of time, you can have some of that ether taken away. It's called slashing. So there is sort of, you know, uh, there's an incentive to do the right thing by the network and to be up and, and ready to validate so that, you know, then you can potentially get the carrot and that free ether from um, validating the latest batch. What yeah, exactly. I find fascinating... A pure, a pure yeah. proof of work system... Um, essentially has only that one direction and only has the carrot, um, the reward. Um, uh, Vitalik and, and the research team's insight early on is that uh, having both a punishment and a reward enables you to, to set up a, a much more effective system and enables you to uh, essentially thwart or, or make uh, 
impossible or foolish, uh, certain kinds of attacks where you can just print lots of hash power and attack the network. And uh, if it doesn't go that well, that's fine. You just uh, uh, you borrowed some hash power. Um, but in the case of um, running the same sort of attack when you're staking, uh, you can you can actually have your uh, your assets slashed or, or destroyed. Right. Um, so it's like uh, if you uh, try to attack the network um, with a proof of work system, uh, it's like your proof of work system getting uh, um, burnt up in ashes, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great segue. Um, you bring up Vitalik uh, Buterin, the inventor of Ethereum. And what I find fascinating, and maybe not a lot of people are aware of, maybe some, but proof of stake has always been the, the roadmap for Ethereum, yep. even when Vitalik, you know, I remember his earliest white papers mentioning a move to proof of stake. And the, the thing was back in 2013 when he was writing this, if I'm not sure if you agree with this or, or I don't remember exactly the state of the art, but proof of stake didn't, it was more theoretical than anything. No, it that, that... did exist. There, there were uh, some systems that uh, had implemented uh, proof of stake, but uh, um, we just, we were aware of different attack vectors that we didn't have a good solution for. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, so yeah, and then certainly that... the idea of moving proof of work to proof of stake didn't exist. And that's something that has taken years to tr yeah. sort of like figure out because that is, um, you know, I spoke to Mikhail Kalinin a, a while ago. He's one of the, the, the folks that he's working for you on the Teku um, client. And his idea was, you know, no, we should we should not take Ethereum offline to make the switch. It should be kind of in real time. And that's that's a huge technical challenge. And, and I think that's one reason that uh, there's been, you know, it's taken years really to kind of figure this out. Yeah, a, a slight revision to, to what you just said. To, there was never any... Yeah, um, idea or even option to take Ethereum offline, uh, sort of stop it and uh, and then restart it as a, a new kind of architecture. Uh, the idea was always to um, take Ethereum and evolve it in some way um, smoothly uh, from what it is, where it's a, an execution chain uh, with proof of work built right into that protocol. Um, to something that uh, would see um, the execution elements sort of split out um, into different shards. Um, and what we've, uh, what Mikhail and, and, and others uh, came up with was uh, uh, essentially a way to set up a proof of stake system running in parallel um, and uh, then essentially via a delicate surgery uh, keep the execution chain running, but excise the proof of work element from the execution chain and replace it in real time with a proof of stake consensus system. Um, so essentially at, at block X, um, you would uh, just have the existing system, the execution chain running, and at block X plus one, uh, which should land around September 15th, um, uh, that next block would uh, uh, would have the consensus network sort of sub in uh, for certain pieces of code in the execution network and take care of consensus at that point. So yeah. it's essentially yeah. 
two parallel networks that are, are being grafted into one. Correct. And that's where the merge name comes from. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The beacon chain has been live and that is the proof of stake system. So it's been live I sent December 2020. I think I have that correct. That sounds right. And it's about, about 18 months. I think. Yeah. And so it's, it's been running and I guess kind of like a test net or, you know, it's just been live and there's well, several... it's, it's, it hasn't been a test net. It's been a, a live blockchain network. Um, but it doesn't process transactions yet. Right, it doesn't have anything on the execution layer. Exactly. Right, it's got several billion dollars worth of ether um, behind it, and that's the staking. Yeah. And then the merge is like when- Like a security system just waiting for something to see. Yeah, right, right. And so when around September 15th, what's gonna happen, the beacon chain is there, and, and they're gonna just port in like all the NFTs and all the DeFi protocols and you know um, all of the, decentralized exchanges and everything else that, that we know of as Ethereum now that'll just kind of merge onto the beacon chain. Um, yeah, it's important to point out that it um, we're not moving anything around. We're port, not porting in anything. Everything uh, on Ethereum stays exactly where it is, working exactly as it does. Uh, there, there's some some tiny edge cases to, to that statement that I just made, but uh, everything stays in place. And what we do is we remove the little proof of work component and we replace it with this whole network um, that brings in a much better uh, right. consensus system. Yeah, um, that's so a great point to make. It, and... it's, a, it's a really smooth transition and most developers and, and probably all users won't know the difference. Um, nothing will appear to have changed. For them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why is it, uh, in your opinion, what is this going to allow um, for Ethereum to do going forward that a proof of work system would not let it do? Well, the first thing which you mentioned already is that it uh, it drastically reduces the carbon footprint. Uh, so some calculations are 99.95% more uh, energy efficient. Uh, so it does much less wasted computation. It does no wasted computation, actually. All the computation is... Uh, uh, in the service of the system, um, and it burns as much electricity as, say, a coffee cup um, for for a transaction compared to, uh, um, or I think that's per block even. Um, uh, so yeah, I've heard in, it said that in, it's just like any other cloud-based computing yeah, company. Exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you don't need specialized hardware. You can run it on on something uh, reasonably lightweight. Um, in human history, no industry, no um, major energy consumer has ever essentially eliminated their carbon footprint. Um, so that's, that's, I think, a, a remarkable achievement. Um, and um, and it is it does it while making everything else better uh, in terms of. Um, the smoothness of the, of the transition in terms of scalability, as you indicated. Essentially, the Ethereum ecosystem uh, in its um, quest to progressively decentralize and get more and more efficient has been modularizing. Uh, so uh, like most technologies, it starts out pretty monolithic in this case where all of the functionality was in a single protocol, uh, in a single uh, body of code in, in the Ethereum clients. 
And what we see as, as technologies mature is that they modularize, they identify places where um, pieces could be split apart uh, to be more effective or more efficient. And so we're seeing the Ethereum ecosystem modularize into three major components. One is for security, one is for execution, it's running the programs, the applications, and one is for something called guaranteed data availability. Uh, so the security component is, is this massively decentralized uh, layer one. Um, and that is actually- and That's the proof of stake um, network that we're talking about. Yeah, so so currently all of that was in the, the many nodes of, of layer one uh, of just Ethereum. Um, but now we have um, over 100,000, over 300,000, I think, uh, validators. They're not all owned by uh, single individuals, but uh, it's still massively decentralized. Um, and that plus uh, interaction with uh, uh, the layer one execution chain um, is the essentially the security module. Um, the execution modules are sort of split between what we call layer two, which is a whole bunch of different blockchain-like things that sit, that anchor into layer one. So they run transactions very inexpensively at high throughput. Uh, some of them are at uh, thousands of transactions per second, and they anchor into Ethereum layer one uh, to gain the full security guarantee um, that layer one can provide. So they're, they're just as secure essentially as uh, as any layer one application. Um, and so the execution environment is now moving mostly to layer two and soon it'll move to, to even layer three so that anchor into layer two. Um, and part of it is still sitting on layer one Ethereum. The third piece, uh, which is actually enabled by proof of stake also is uh, guaranteed data availability where uh, we'll be adding soon um, what we call shards, data shards. And these layer two systems, they need access to guaranteed available data in order to essentially prove um, using that data uh, that the transactions that they ran um, actually happened as advertised. And so by adding 64 initially, guaranteed data availability shards, we're going to enable many more bigger, better, faster layer twos to run on Ethereum. So that uh, that's the major vector for and scalability. Is this data um, necessary for smart contracts, for example, to like, it's a, it's a, is it pricing data? Is it economic data? Is it um, event outcome data? That sort of thing where if a smart contract is going to be triggered by something like a, a, a certain price level or like um you know did um, a boxer win a match or not you know for some sort of payout is that is that what you're talking about here so that's useful and, and even necessary data but that's not um what we would call guaranteed available data in the sense of uh, uh what roll-ups need in order to prove that uh, transactions happened and the blocks were contained as they were. Um, so that, that's application layer data, and we're talking essentially block production and block validation data. Okay, okay. So it's essentially information about transactions uh, that could be combined with uh, things like zero knowledge proofs um, uh, to 
prove to people uh, that the network says that what the network says happened actually happened. Okay. So it's, a, it's about the, the plumbing of, of the whole network system. Okay. Um, so let's go back a little bit because as I mentioned at the top, you are co-founder of Ethereum. Um, I believe you first met Vitalik in Toronto uh, in early 2013. I think it was right around- Early 2014. Uh, 2014, sorry. Um, right around, yeah. Um, and can you just tell us a little bit about that and, and what was it about Ethereum and this project that, um, you know, like caused you to ever since basically put 100% of your life into it? Um, well, I was already paying a ton of attention to the blockchain ecosystem since about early 2011. Um, and I'd read lots of articles by Vitalik Buterin. Uh, he was writing articles in Bitcoin Magazine. I thought he was uh, an incredibly lucid writer. Um, I learned a lot from his articles. I was yeah. uh, kind of stunned uh, when I found out that he was, I think, maybe 19 years old when he was writing those articles. And, he was uh, still in high school, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's possible for some of those, uh, although uh, he certainly spent... Uh, Part of a year at least, maybe a whole year at uh, University of Waterloo uh, up in Canada. Um, and um, I, so I'm from Toronto. I grew up in Toronto and uh, Vitalik uh, grew up in Toronto. And another co-founder of Ethereum, uh, Anthony Diorio, is from Toronto. And uh, he was doing this thing um, called the Global Bitcoin Alliance, I believe. Um, and there was this other thing called the Bitcoin Foundation. And uh, I and many others were a bit disappointed in, in how the Bitcoin Foundation appeared to be sort of, um, you know, probably with good intentions, uh, appeared to be sort of <laughs> taking a top-down command and control uh, mm -hmm. approach to uh, trying to coordinate and promote the Bitcoin ecosystem. So it seemed like a, a badly structured thing to me. Uh, and I didn't know a ton about it, but uh, um, Anthony essentially indicated that he wanted to do a, a bottoms up approach with the Global Bitcoin Alliance and uh, sort of do a more grassroots thing. Um, and I, I appreciated that. I, I reached out to him uh, just to talk about it at some point, because I knew I was heading up to Toronto to visit my family in December of 2013, uh, and we ended up getting on a call and, and talking, and he said uh, uh, there was going to be a meetup. Vitaly Buterin uh, had written a white yeah, paper. His white paper what, had just come out six, yeah, it was, eight it was about weeks th before. 30, 30 days old at that yeah, time. Yeah. Um, and so he uh, invited me to the meetup. Um, I spoke with Vitalik for a little while. Vitalik sent me the white paper. Vitalik did a little talk on Ethereum and uh, uh, it sounded pretty cool to me uh, and it sounded pretty cool to lots of other people and, and a lot of us uh, just stayed connected to the project uh, through uh, through Skype sessions and meetups and yeah. about a month later, a few of us met in Miami uh, yeah. where the telecom was wow. delivering yeah, the, the timing paper itself. Amazing the there. Conference. Yeah. How do you feel um, today about thinking about where you started there and, and that you were there on the ground floor um, in general? And we'll get back to the merge in a sec, but how, how, how has it 
matched your expectations or how has it exceeded them over the years with, with all the things that have happened, the ups and downs? I feel pretty good. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I believed uh, when I first read uh, Satoshi's white paper uh, that the technology was going to be, was so profound um, that uh, it would enable us to fix lots of the issues that uh, uh, we had on planet Earth and, and that have grown um, difficult issues that have grown exponentially in, in the interim. Um, those are around trust and centralized institutions, both financial and political, um, the nature of the monetary system, the weaknesses in the monetary system. Uh, and I felt like uh, we'd done pretty well as a, as a society in uh, taking things to a, a certain point. Many people had benefited, uh, quality of life across the, the board was uh, quite improved uh, over the last few thousand years, uh, but that we could do so much better. Uh, essentially, we, until the invention of blockchain, we didn't have really good horizontal coordination mechanisms. Uh, we had quite good vertical coordination mechanisms, but vertical coordination mechanisms like uh, top-down command and control um, suffered from, from certain weaknesses where you'd see um, consolidation of power and siloing of information and, and essentially the top of the pyramid doing well uh, and neglecting to disseminate the value created uh, by that pyramid to uh, you know, relatively equitably uh, along. Yeah, you can you see that in the wage gap in this country or the Western and, civilization. Yeah. You know, we look at exactly. CEO pay versus worker pay. Yeah, there's a million different metrics to, to prove that out. Yeah, and so my intuition was that if, uh, if you continue to have um, vertical coordination mechanisms that are supplemented um, in effect in interesting ways with horizontal coordination mechanisms um, and you rely more heavily on the horizontal mechanisms and, and use the vertical ones as, as much shallower hierarchies, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, you could build much better economic, social, political, financial systems. Uh, yeah. So I was pretty sure that was an idea that was going to transform everything. I didn't have a sense of how quickly. I thought it would be pretty slow. Uh, understanding the Bitcoin technology as I did. Um, but then Vitalik came along and essentially described a much more expressive system where uh, instead of... So, so Bitcoin's virtual machine doesn't have much computational power or expressive power. Um, and in contrast, the virtual machine of Ethereum um, enables any software developer uh, to get in there and build whatever can be imagined and, and, and scalably executed. And so yeah. uh, when I read the Ethereum vision, and, and others were trying to do that as well, but they weren't doing it in a way that, uh, that really brought uh, the full power of a computer uh, to every node of the network. Um, and so this vision uh, just made it clear to me that we could... Uh, um, get there much faster, that we could build uh, significant 
significantly decentralized systems um, and make an impact on on different niches of the economy relatively quickly. And I think it's gone remarkably quickly right yeah. now. If you squint your eyes, it's been up only. It's it's been exponentially up only. Um, but with any sort of technology that uh, profoundly alters a society, it's going to be volatile. And this particular technology um, is being built out in the open with everybody um, speculatively jumping on or bitterly criticizing, depending on on where you are in that volatile curve. Um, and it's also being built on on live monetary and asset rails. Um, so uh, the volatile volatility is exacerbated by, by both yeah, of those. Absolutely. I wrote about it in my book about what Vitalik did was I, I said it's like he created the canvas upon which anyone in the world could paint their own vision of what they wanted uh, in the blockchain. Uh, yeah. And it, it, it was radically simple, but also necessary, I think. And, and here we are, um, what, seven years later. Yeah. Importantly, it's a technology that democratizes perhaps everything um, in the sense that uh, previously the uh, world governance systems weren't uh, weren't constructed um, in a democratized way. They're generally constructed by small groups of people. They're not uh, based on open source software and uh, uh, and experimented with and versioned and and forked uh, and improved via forking. Um, there's certainly something like that that happens and that. Uh, um, certain countries experiment yeah. with the political system and then you need a revolution, lots of people die and um, move to a different continent and they try another experiment, but uh, it, it enables uh, real entrepreneurs and technologists to get in there and uh, democratize the development of governance. And the same thing is happening to finance where uh, economic systems, financial systems are essentially built in closed software where um, behind closed doors at banks and central banks and and securities companies, brokerages, et cetera. And, uh, and what is being done in our ecosystem is bringing technologists and entrepreneurs in to build all of that out in the open and uh, ideally uh, going forward, enabling people to permissionlessly utilize all of that. Yeah, it's really interesting that you keep hitting on, obviously, the decentralization fact or factor here. And then, which, you know, in the broader society, as you've been saying, doesn't exist very often. It's usually a vertical kind of top-down approach. And then in recent times, even in crypto, problems we've seen have been in projects that actually are more centralized than decentralized. You saw it with Luna and Terra. Um, you've seen it with some of the lending protocols where there's a central party involved that, where there's a sort of a black box, box going on and you don't know what's going on with the assets and then they fail and there's like a run on the bank. So even as people uh, in Web3 and crypto are trying to decentralize, there are still these you know strong pulls towards a centralization factor or like a single point of failure. Um, so, you know, I find that fascinating. Um, but getting back to the merge and what, what's happening um, hopefully in mid-September there there are some risks and people are it's it does it seems like it's getting louder that people are um, there are some worries um, and I just wanted to run through a, a few with you and just get your, your thoughts on it um, 
think the first and most interesting one, uh, you uh, just for a tiny bit of background, you went, you know, you were around when the DAO happened and then the decision to fork Ethereum was made and then uh, to, to change the Ethereum history so that the DAO, you know, would, wouldn't exist basically. It's just a short way of saying it and people get their money back. But then some miners decided to mine, continue mining on the original Ethereum chain. And that's how we got Ethereum Classic. Um, there is some thinking now or some, some mining uh, companies and miners are saying, once the merge happens, we want to keep mining on the proof of night, uh, proof of work Ethereum network um, so that there could potentially be uh, a, you know, fork. Um, so, and the, we should say, I think there, there's, you know, once mining gets taken out of the equation, a lot of these companies who have spent millions of dollars, you know, on this expensive equipment really won't have much use for that equipment anymore. So I do understand like the economic impact. I don't quite understand the timing of it because this has been in the works for years and they should have known and seen it coming from the very beginning. But that being said, Joe, what do you think about this possibility of, um, you know, a, the fork continuing on, and that a proof of work Ethereum network will continue to exist after the merge? Yeah, so it has been telegraphed since the start of the project. Um, people have seen it coming for years and, uh, and virtually everybody um, is aligned with the, with the switchover, uh, rooting for the switchover, positioning themselves economically uh, for the switchover and philosophically for the switchover. Um, but in our ecosystem, there are always people exploring different opportunities. Uh, uh, so I would call it opportunistic uh, to, to identify that there might be an opportunity here. Uh, it's an opportunity, I think, to make money rather than to keep a, a viable or better system in place um with the with the the old fork around the dow um that was a time in which our ecosystem was quite immature compared to uh, its current state there are so many businesses that uh, both have um more centralized or real world physical corporate components um uh, to their offerings um that support the decentralized components of their offerings. And uh, um, it's hard to imagine what would happen on uh, a proof of work chain that, uh, that continued to be operated by a small number of miners um, when lots of the applications that, uh, that run on uh, what would be a, a ghost town chain, I think. Yeah. Uh, would no longer be supported by um, the people who are supporting the the real versions of those applications on on the uh, the fork or the upgraded chain. Yeah, so, because there are some I real think, inf infrastructure issues here, right? Yeah, like a ton of infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, exactly. and who's gonna like who's gonna put in the work? Because in just one example, maybe we could touch on um, the replay attack. Um, you know, is a, is a real risk here, and, and a replay yeah. attack is when a, a blockchain splits and there's a fork. And now you have a new cryptocurrency that equals the amount of cryptocurrency you had on the original chain. And it, and I'm not sure I'm going to get this right, Joe, so help me out. But if you move either one of those um, coins, then you are opening yourself up to um, somebody, 
being able to get get access to other. your account or how do you how would you put that um yeah so um if i do a transaction i sign a transaction on network a and network b has the same network id um so otherwise it appears identical um then you could just run that transaction on on network b and uh um and change uh and that and anybody can run it right that's the that's the risk yeah that, yeah. that is correct yeah um, so you and can... uh so it does depend on uh the networks having the same network identity um which may be the case that they may set it up that way yeah It'd be a foolish thing to do um so but just in this example so that means like for that to not be the case somebody before the fork happens would have to um create replay attack protection yeah, exactly. and like who's you know it's it's possible but that's a lot of work right like that's like yeah that's so there that's one that's a small amount of work compared to all the work they'd have to do to uh to keep the network going um it there would just be so many issues uh it would be like a bit like uh trying to create a clone um, but uh, ripping randomly out of the clone uh, a whole bunch of its DNA. Uh, so yeah. you wouldn't know what would be working. Uh, you wouldn't know when something might stop working. Um, yeah. So it would, it would be a, it's viable. Um, you might be able to create a, a viable new network. Um, some of it would operate, but uh, uh, you know, nobody would... Uh, trust it with anything significant right and it, yeah it sounds and again just another example um stable coins wouldn't be supported on that network wrapped assets wouldn't be supported so that would have profound effects on all the DeFi protocols on that proof of work ethereum yeah. network um, bridges to other networks um, yeah you'd yeah. have to get uh, those bridges yeah. to uh, to care about this new network yeah. it's a uh, it's it's going to be an enormous amount of work yeah, so I think this is getting a lot of attention, of but I think it's a lot of it's pretty much overblown, in my opinion. Uh, it's so yeah, yeah, it's so overblown. It's uh, it's opportunists that uh, think there might be a way to make some money in the first few minutes or days uh, after the merge. Um, people would be selling that token uh, really, really quickly uh, yeah. right after the merge in order to to gtfo to to get out pretty quickly um is that what that sounds like <laughs> I, I don't i don't think <laughs> yeah yeah uh, yeah get the well, so anyone listening out. if if, exactly. if this does happen and you have ether and then you've got proof of worth ether don't do anything with it just that's the safest thing just leave it alone let the death settle if you move it well, you're going to open yourself up to a replay attack and you don't want that so uh, yeah. my advice from what i've read it's don't, a big mess. Yeah, it's um, a big mess. Don't do anything. Big dangerous mess. Yeah, you could you could end up losing your actual ether if if you try to you know be opportunistic here. But Another risk I feel that's a little more serious, but maybe is more medium term, is um, censorship and and the, the ability of. I know you, we've talked about the decentralization factor for proof of stake, but. There are large companies like Coinbase, FTX, um, Lido, a couple others that are offering staking services, right? Where they are going to have a pretty big chunk of um, the staked ether that's supporting and securing the network under their control. 
which creates pressure points, right? If like we could tie in the tornado cash example here with what happened with the treasury department sanctioning tornado cash contracts and saying no American in the US or abroad can use these contracts, right? Which is unprecedented. So in the future, if it's a staking network and the government says, we don't want you approving any transactions that use these contracts, then a company like Coinbase will have to make a decision where it's like, okay, if there's a block and there's a transaction that came through this sanctioned contract, what do we do about it? Um, and it, that's not, that seems new to me. It's novel. And I wonder what your take is on that. Um, yeah, it's certainly a, a complicated problem. Um, uh, OFAC has uh, sanctioned a bunch of addresses over the last two or three years, I guess, on both Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and in this case, as I understand it, um, the Tornado Cash system was being heavily used by the Lazarus Group of North Korea. Um, and apparently OFAC did a lot of work uh, showing people lots of data uh, to the effect that uh, I heard 70% of, of the transactions were related to nefarious or illicit activity, um, many of which um, were related to Lazarus. Um, so I think we can expect that uh, things like that will, will continue um, to be done by OFAC and maybe other nation state actors. Um, what I and many people disagree with is the sanctioning of essentially free speech, um, mm -hmm. the sanctioning of published software yeah, in the United States. Yeah. yeah, in the United States, uh, speech is protected um, and the court systems have essentially equated the publishing of software with free speech. And so I think it was an overreach uh, by the regulators to, to try to sanction a smart contract. And I think that'll get undone uh, probably by the court system in the United States. Um, until then, it's, uh, it's, it's a gray zone, I think. Um, and, and then so what do you little, think about- It's a little you know... bit complicated, but they're, they're also technological solutions. So essentially um, when regulators, um, create um, that sort of uncertainty uh, there it, it basically prompts technologists to identify uh, what it was that was a weakness in the system and uh, and figure out how to decentralize that weakness so there, there are uh, technologies already being built um, been worked on for quite some time whether they're yeah. um, different forms of cryptography or other kinds of protocols that uh, enable the the decentralization of things that are um, centralized enough for uh, for them to be used as chokeholds. So I'm not worried. Uh, it's certainly a um, a point of focus for people who are who either don't understand the details or or like to be alarmist, um, but. Uh, we'll just keep our heads down and, and continue to progressively decentralize the technology. And speaking of that, do you worry about some concentration here? Um, you know, we saw it with proof of work, like very large um, mining companies came to be uh, into existence that, you know, had um, double digit um, percentages of the mining, you know, um, market share. 
it seems like with like we've been like i said coinbase ftx other staking systems um could it could develop into that same sort of um scenario where in a perfect world everyone you know with 32 eth around the world would be staking but it seems like things tend to concentrate um so and, and we should say that's because let's say you only have 10 ether you know you can join a staking pool and like just put in your 10 eth and you kind of get paid you know um, proportionally minus fees for from the staking pool so in a sense that that kind of opens things up to people who don't have 32 ether but do you do you think there's concern should we be concerned about like the fact that that some of these um services will represent a pretty big chunk of of the stake eth that's that's securing the network well i think uh i think the situation will continually improve but i wasn't very worried about uh, the situation under proof of work because um there's a lot of vigilance in our ecosystem and people it was a fluid system so people could vote with their feet people could remove their assets from a particular pool uh, that was getting too powerful. And, and we mm -hmm. saw some examples of that. We um, also saw some examples of, of complacency um, during the early years. Um, so I think as the system becomes even more systemically important to the planet, uh, there will be a lot of scrutiny and a lot of vigilance on concentration of control. Uh, and so and just many more actors that are interested in in getting in and and setting up their own systems or distributing uh, staking power um, much more broadly. Um, yeah. So I, I don't anticipate uh, as it becomes uh, an important system for the planet uh, that will uh, see concentration concerns. Okay. So let's just look forward a little bit and assume and importantly um that is facilitated by the proof of stake system in a proof of work system i wouldn't be able to say that because um a nation state actor or uh, a very advanced semiconductor company uh, could potentially build a technology and hoard that technology and uh, you know essentially 51 percent uh, network uh, without even that network knowing it, if it was done in uh, in subtle ways, um, mm. that's not even remotely possible. And a proof of stake system would, would be way too expensive to acquire that much stake. Yeah, good point. Let's say it's September sixteenth. The merge is successful. Everything's fine. What are you looking forward to next in Ethereum? And what what excites you? And and what what's the next milestone that you think is going to move things forward? So the next two pieces are, are um, so this was a minimum viable merge. Um, and the next two pieces most likely are enabling uh, the ether on the beacon chain to move freely. Um, Rather than uh, be locked up uh, in a yeah, certain, which is yeah, the way it works for, now. For a period of time, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's not, not yet free to move. Um, mm -hmm. And then beyond that, uh, the the data shards, the guaranteed availability data shards, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they're going to come online. Uh, so, and we should have said earlier that's going to make things much faster, right? That's that's yeah, that's that's, that's gonna, a, we're all about making transactions per second go or per minute or whatever go way up. Yeah. So we've actually seen scalability on the Ethereum network grow quite significantly. Um, you probably hear less complaining about scalability on Ethereum and less complaining about the cost of a transaction 
on Ethereum recently. Um, it's gotten pretty inexpensive. Partly that's because uh, it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere and uh, and transaction volumes are, are lower. Um, We're in a bear market too. People are taking the summer off after uh, a difficult COVID um, period. Um, and we're seeing a lot of uh, transaction throughput, a lot of scalability brought to Ethereum already uh, in the form of these these layer two networks that are anchored in. Uh, and so um, scalability is already here in a significant way and it's uh, it's going to be supercharged pretty massively uh, with one of the upgrades. Yes. Well, Joe, thank you so much. This has been a fan fascinating conversation. I always really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me, whether it was for my book or, you know, you were the guy who made the light bulb go off over my head in your office in Bushwick uh, consensus about exactly what Ethereum was. And back when you were in, and other people were talking about the world computer. And, and so that must have been 2016. So I know that you've done that for many people that I've spoken to over the years. So thank you um, for that. And and again, thank you for uh, all the time and your insight here. It's been it's been wonderful to see you and, and to talk. Always a pleasure, Matt. Um, and thank you for the great work you do. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. And hopefully we'll see uh, you soon uh, in real life. Sounds good. Okay. See you soon. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter, at Decential. Have a great day. <laughs>